with me now at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. God's word says this, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now some of your Bibles, want to pause, may not have verse 4. Look down in the footnotes if it doesn't. For verse 4, an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps in before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And this is the word of the Lord. Over the past few weeks, we have seen Jesus work wondrous signs and miracles to symbolize his divinity and his coming kingdom. Uh, He has purposely and intentionally chosen specific people, uh, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, to reveal himself to. And now we're going to see or begin to see a shift in the ministry and works of Jesus. Jesus' next four miracles will each take place on sacred Jewish holidays to reveal that he is higher than these things, that he's more important than each of these. He has authority over them. Today, we're going to see Jesus work on the sacred Sabbath. We will see him uh, next work in chapter 6 on Passover. And then in chapter 7, we will see Jesus' next miracle in the Feast of Booths. And then finally, his last or his fourth miracle will be done in chapter 10 on the Feast of Dedication, or what, more, what is more commonly known as Hanukkah. Uh, but what I want us to see before we get into it too deep this morning is that Jesus is extremely methodical in his ministry. Yes, he healed and preached everywhere, but there are numerous instances in Jesus' ministry and recorded in the Gospels where he is intentionally choosing a person, a place, or his words, or a time to get his point across specifically. And today's passage is one such example. It is no accident or coincidence that Jesus is doing what he's doing today and making the claims of what he is making on the Sabbath. It is deliberate. So up until now, Jesus has not made uh, any public claims to the religious authorities as to who he is. The only interactions we've seen in John with the religious authorities is when he cleaned out the temple 
uh, and said that he would rebuild the temple, meaning his body, in three days' time. But he's not openly made any claims to his authority or who he is to the public. Yes, he's shared with individuals, his disciples, and the Samaritan woman, but the greater public don't know who he is. And so today's attention, uh, today our attention will specifically turn to see Jesus on the Sabbath and the reaction he is going to get from the Jews and the religious leaders. And this deed that he does, again, is purposeful, and it sets up claims that he will then make, which we'll look at in verses 17 and 18, which those will then set the stage for what we will look at next week when Jesus goes in on deep dive into the breadth and width of his authority and saying where does he get his authority from and the rest chapter 5. But today, this healing on the Sabbath sets forth a claim from Jesus that he has authority over everything. And that's the main idea that we're going to focus in on today. Jesus has absolute authority over all things. Now, before we get uh, too deep uh, into the message, uh, I want us to leave church for a moment. Uh, now we're going to enter the classroom. So this is going to get really teachy for about five minutes. So just bear with me if that is not your thing. Uh, I mentioned when I was reading, and if you look in your Bibles, some of you might not have verse 4 there. It might be bracketed and says earlier manuscripts do not have verse 4. Or if you look down in your footnotes at the bottom of your Bible, you will see verse 4 put there. Um, but you might read, it goes 3 and then 5. Uh, and you're like, oh no, my Bible has a misprint, i got to throw it away, i got to buy a new one, and these things are a lot of money. Uh, no, don't worry. Uh, there's a reason for that. There's an intention um, behind that. If you don't know, uh, we read it already, but verse 4 reads this. Uh, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the waters, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the waters was healed of whatever disease he had. Uh, now, uh, the, um, here's why that happens. And we want to, again, this is going to get really teachy, but it's our job as preachers and expositors of the word. We want to inform you of the text beyond your personal study. Understand the immediate Jewish context of John's gospel already is well informed about the pool of Bethesda. They know the folklore, they know the superstition or the idea around it. So John doesn't need to mention anything about an angel in the pool. So everybody in that immediate context would understand. It would like be me. I don't need to explain Shepherdsville to those who live in Shepherdsville. They've been here longer than me, so I don't need to over-explain the layout of Shepherdsville. But years go by, and John's gospel is circulating in non-Jewish contexts to Gentile audiences. And without that verse 4 there, then, it does, the story doesn't really make a lot of sense. We don't get a lot of clarity. Why is the water being stirred? Why are there a bunch of sick people trying to go into the water. And why does the first person only get healed? The story kind of doesn't, doesn't make sense. And then the man's dialogue with Jesus, we kind of don't have clarity around that. And so later scribes added in verse 4 and added in that context so non-Jewish audiences would understand the pool. Uh, so again, why is that a big deal? We might look at, then they explain, well, it's a big deal because they believe an angel comes down, touches the water, and we get clarity from that. So, does that detract at all from the purpose and meaning of Scripture? Is that one verse not God-breathed? No. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting. And so, this does not make it any less. The fact that it was not written by John, it was added later, it's still the Word of God, it is still perfect. 
and infallible. And, and further point before we leave, we see examples of this all throughout Mark's gospel as well. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, and so he clarifies Jewish practices and Jewish customs all the time because his audience has no idea uh, what they are. So I'll give you an example is Mark chapter 7, verses 2, 3, and 4. Mark says, They, being the Pharisees, saw that some of his, Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. What's the big deal? A Gentile audience is going to ask. I don't care about that, John. I don't understand. So John, in parentheses, or John, uh, Mark, so in parentheses, Mark adds this next statement uh, as an aside. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. So he's, he's explaining the Jewish custom in the law so the people understand. That's exactly, go back here to Gospel of John, what the earlier scribes are doing. They're just explaining for the audience. And now lastly, uh, is it an actual angel healing? The, is an angel coming down, touching the pool, stirring up the water? Some historians also believe it's a mineral deposit, and so the minerals in the water healed. What are we to do with that? I don't know, and I'm be honest, I don't care, and neither should we, because if we focus on spending all of our time, there's nothing wrong in your own time studying this and figuring it out, it's awesome, but if you're going to spend all of our time looking at John chapter 5 and looking at, oh man, is it a real angel, or I don't really understand all of this, then we've missed the entire uh, story of Jesus healing this man. We've missed the point of the gospel account. John doesn't care whether it's an angel or not, and by and large, neither should we. It's an interesting fact, and it's an interesting study, but we shouldn't get hung up on this one fact. And so, with this brief just understanding of verse 4 and of John, let's not focus on the angel and this pool of healing as much, but let's focus on the one who first Peter says has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So let's not worry about the angel or the pool. Let's worry about the one who the angels report to. Let's worry about the one who is in authority over those angels. All right, class dismissed. We're back in church. Welcome. Glad you're here. <laughs> so we see Jesus. Uh, so hopefully that paints a better picture for you as well. Now we see Jesus stepping into this scene. He enters this pool area and all around him are sick people in desperate need of healing. And so we're going to look at our first main point. When we look at Jesus's authority is Jesus shows he has authority over man. Look with me again at verses five through the first part. Of nine. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had been there a long time and said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going in, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. And so we see in this uh, instance, a lot of things are going on here. So understand, I want to give you a little bit more context. In Jewish, ancient Jewish traditions, the sick and or disabled were seen as unclean. They were viewed as second or third class citizens. They were barred from entering the temple and in many parts of the city. And oftentimes they were forced to live beyond the city and out uh, beyond the gates. And so to possess a disability or an infirmary of any sort was to be seen as a curse from God. We're going to see that in John chapter 9 later, 
uh, when, the, uh, when the disciples of Jesus see the blind man, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born like this? And Jesus says, you know, neither. Uh, there's a whole other sermon that we'll get there eventually. But to be cursed or to be sick was seen as a curse from God, sorry. So in order to be unbarred from the temple, you had to become clean. You had to be cured of your ailments or disabilities. And thus you were seen as having right standing with God. But you can't become clean and have right standing with God without first being able to go to the temple in the first place. So do you see this man's dilemma here? He's, he's seen as a third-class citizen, and he's barred from the only place that's going to get him the access to the, uh, the status that he is due. And so Jesus comes to this man and asks if he desires uh, to be healed. And the man then responds with that predicament. He can't outrace the others to the pool. Uh, He's hopeless. Think about that. 38 years you stand here waiting to try to get into that water for healing. But uh, he's lived 38 years like this, and we're to believe he's going to go on living at 38 more without Jesus' intervention. And so look at the power of Jesus in this moment as he exercises his authority over man, over the physical realm, by healing him. He walks up. Asks if he wants to get healed, and then no further questions, no tests of faith, no quizzes, and say, all right, I want you to name all of the prophets in order from height, and then which one weighed the most, and if you get them wrong, uh, you're not going to be healed. No, that's ridiculous. And so we see him heal him out of the love and tenderness of his heart. And I love this picture that is then painted by John. A place full of people that are believed to be cursed by God is the very place God in the flesh deliberately chooses to go to. These people are worthless in the eyes of the uh, the public, and that's the very place our Savior waltzed into and did his act. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Jesus sought this man out, healed him, and understand the man did nothing in this, the man contributed nothing to this miracle or this healing except having the disability that required it in the first place. He brought nothing to the table, and Jesus loved him and healed him. This man could not get to the temple and could not therefore go to God, and so God in the flesh came to him. See Jesus' authority again in the physical realm as he says in verse 9. And at once, the man was healed. It was instantaneous. There was not five minutes went by and he's starting uh, to feel a little bit better or he was partially healed. He got one leg working and he can hop around for a little bit. And then tomorrow, his other leg is working. No, it's in that very moment, the man was healed of his uh, disability from him being crippled. Jesus alone has the power to heal and to perfectly heal. Jesus made this man well again. And for the second time now, we've seen Jesus' authority over the physical world by curing sickness. Last week, we saw Jesus heal the official's son. And now John shows us here that Jesus wasn't done, but again is going to do it with another person and with this man here. Because Jesus alone has the authority to do these things. And we, uh, in today's age, especially with my generation, not just my generation, but uh, it's predominant, we tend to view authority as bad or abusive. All authority has a blanket statement of being bad, abusive. I don't want to submit to anybody. Um, If you're in a position of power, I automatically do not trust you. But look at how Jesus uses his authority. Look at the tenderness behind it. He loves this man. 
Jesus sought him out and healed him. And we're going to see in a little bit, if we skip down to verse 14, Jesus seeks him out a second time at the temple. So after he is healed, uh, the man no doubt uh, is offering praises and worship to God. Uh, remember, he doesn't know that this is Jesus. He just thinks it's some dude. And so he goes to the temple to offer praises and worship to God. And that is where a second time we see Jesus approach him. And hear what he says in verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And so, first off, we can, uh, as this man can even ask, you know, who are you to say that to me? What are we to do with this warning given by Jesus? Is Jesus saying that if this man goes on sinning, he might become crippled again? Or that if he leaves the temple today and sins tomorrow, uh, he may go blind or lose both of his arms? No, I don't think so. Whereas the first time we see Jesus healing this man, deliberately out to heal this man, uh, what we see now is Jesus is going after the man's heart and soul. Jesus is pointing this man towards righteousness because he alone has the authority to say, don't you dare sin again. Something worse is going to happen if you do. He can make those claims. He's calling him to holiness because the judgment that this man will face will be far worse than the past 38 years of his life. Friends, the final judgment that we will sit under maybe if we are apart from Christ, will be far worse than the sins we have committed on this present time. And so you see, back to Jesus, it's not enough that this man has been healed. It's not enough that you've been healed. You must be saved. You're not in right standing with God because you have your life together. You're not in right standing with God because you haven't suffered. Or you're not in right standing with God because you've been delivered out of a pain or hardship. You are in right standing with God because you put your faith and trust in Jesus. This man hasn't done that yet. And so Jesus goes out to save him and to save his soul. I firmly believe he sought him out to finish the work that he had started Look at what Paul says uh, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. His work wasn't done on the man. Jesus did not heal the man and then leave him to his own devices and say, all right, now you figure it out from here. Good luck. No. That would be a wrong use of his authority. Rather, in his authority, is able to go into the temple, the place of God, and say, do not sin anymore. Jesus sought him out, forewarned of his sin, and we can infer that this man went on to be a follower of Christ. And so we need to also understand the physical healing of this man is absolutely worthless in comparison to his spiritual need of a savior. What good does it, does the Gospel of Mark say, for what does it profit a man, so what good does it do to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This man got his whole world. Literally, he, the world is opened up to him now. He can walk again. He is back to normal. His world is opened up. But what good is that going to do if in 12 years he dies? It serves nothing. It serves no purpose and no glory is offered to the Lord. Rather, Jesus saves his soul and he does not lose his soul and he gets uh, the world, if you will. All praise to Jesus in this instance. When I see this man, 
uh, and I see Jesus working in his life, I am so, so thankful for a Savior who sought me out in my sins while I was sinning, while I hated him, while I despised righteousness, and I had no desire to do good. Christ died for me in my sins, that he sought me out. And church, he is seeking you out. What a beautiful Savior. That is someone I want to work for, and that is someone I want to serve. I am thankful for the Savior who is bringing to completion my salvation according to his plans. That God did not save me when I was a first grader asking my parents about eternity and then say, all right, Nate, good luck for the next couple years of your life. But it has been every step of the way Jesus has saved and has been working in my life. And the, you know what? The humbling part is that I can contribute nothing to my salvation and nothing to my holiness that is the work of Christ in me. He is doing the work. He is using his authority over man by saving us and saving this man. And so when I look at the lost in this world, when I look at those who do not know Christ or who hate Christ, interactions with Jesus and this man remind me that my prayers should not first be, Lord, give them this. Lord, provide them with this. It first should be, Lord, save them. Now, do we pray for the lost? Do we pray for blessings on the unbelievers? Absolutely, yes. But our first prayer, our prayer of utmost importance, must be that they become saved. What good does it do if I pray for my coworker to be taken out of a difficult situation if they still remain lost? I pray for their souls. So we want to look now, as we move away from this man, we want to look now at our second main point. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Look with me at the second part of verse 9 and verse 10. Now that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who has been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So as we mentioned at the very beginning, Jesus is choosing to perform this deed on the Sabbath. We have no comparison in our culture today to the severity and intensity of the Sabbath. Okay, people were killed for breaking the Sabbath, for doing work on the Sabbath. Uh, we, we have no holiday like that. If I do not bring my mother a Mother's Day gift, I am not dragged out of the streets of Sonoy, Georgia, and stoned to death. That's not how, thank goodness, that does not happen. If I forget to bring a Christmas gift to somebody, I am not beaten in the public and made a mockery of. That's not what happens. But that is the same thing that would happen in Jewish traditions if you broke the Sabbath. You could be killed. So we see the command of the Sabbath come from God in the book of Leviticus, where he says this, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So work was prohibited on the Sabbath. It was, it was the most sacred of the days for the Jews. Okay, It was the apex of their holiness. You could determine someone's faithfulness. You could determine someone's right standing with God by how they observed the Sabbath and how well they observed the Sabbath. So someone might quickly interject here and say, well, hold on a second. Well, so isn't, if Jesus is working on the Sabbath, is he breaking the law? I thought he came to fulfill the law and lived it out perfectly. Is he breaking the law now? 
It's a fair question. I want to ask another one. Uh, we need to ask ourselves, well, then, what is work? What does work mean? Because what I would classify as work may not be what you in this room would classify as work. Okay, If you love to garden, if you have a passion for gardening, uh, that's not work for you probably. You probably get a lot of joy and fulfillment out of that. Uh, I don't. And so if I garden, not only will it all die, but I will call that work. I know also, I'm really outing myself here, I know nothing about cars. Nothing about cars at all. My air conditioning went out, and for the longest time I was like, I have no idea how to fix this. Uh, and all I had to do is just take it in and be like, hey, my air conditioning's broken, can you fix it? But I know nothing about vehicles. And so if I had to work on my car, that's going to be a lot of work for me. I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to be rested. But we have many people, many men in this church who I know who I've taken my car to in the past who love to work on cars. They love automobiles. They know everything about cars. And that is just, it's, it's amazing to me. Um, but that's not work for them. So outside of our regular jobs what we would actually legitimately call work, this idea of work then becomes subjective. What I might call work may not be what you call work. I get rest from doing blank, and you get rest from doing blank. And so what ends up happening, uh, if we look at the Leviticus command, there's no stipulations on work. It just says, do not work. So that's up for you outside of your job to determine what do I derive work from. But so what ends up happening in Jewish customs and tradition back then is the Pharisees came along and added their own definitions to what work was, and they made that law. Notice again, the law just says, do not work. It's pretty easy, pretty self-explanatory, super chill. But the Pharisees came along and added, get this, 39 different categories for what they deemed as work on the Sabbath. And in those 39 categories are dozens upon dozens of examples, illustrations, and clarifications of what they call work in that category. Some of those include you couldn't walk more than two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath. You literally had to count your steps on the Sabbath. You could not write anything down on the Sabbath. And on the flip side, you could not erase anything on the Sabbath. You couldn't pick up an object over a very low weight limit, like 15 or 20 pounds, you could not pick up or lift it. And there was no running allowed on the Sabbath. How ridiculous. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day made obedience to God and adherence to the Sabbath way more difficult than God's command said. They added all this red tape to the Sabbath. And in a sense, they've corrupted the Sabbath. They've corrupted the most sacred of days God wanted them to keep by making it into something that it's not. All of the Jews and all of the Pharisees put all of their eggs in the basket of the Sabbath. They banked everything they had on the Sabbath. I can mess up all over here, but as long as I can keep the Sabbath, I know I'm still doing better than that guy. And that's all that matters Timmy, but they corrupted it. They lost the initial purpose and truth behind the Sabbath. And so going back to Jesus now, does Jesus consider healing a man on the Sabbath to be work? Absolutely not. We see elsewhere in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew that Jesus says this, as the Pharisees uh, charge Jesus, how dare you work on the Sabbath? As Jesus is healing a woman, he calls out to them the Gospel of Luke, you hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? So he's calling out their hypocrisy of like, well, if you think this is work, which it's not, you're working way more than I am by doing these things. 
But then get, this is the big verse here. Matthew 12, uh, verses 7 through 8. God, Jesus says this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. I love this verse because Jesus is saying, I'm over the Sabbath. I have authority over the Sabbath. I built the thing. I think I know how it works. He's saying, you have done horrible things to the Sabbath. And in this moment, he is saying, you do not listen. You need to listen. The Sabbath does not rule over me. I rule over the Sabbath. I have authority over the highest form of devotion to God that you can fathom is what Jesus is saying in this instance. Every one of that, those days that followed the Pharisees' teaching put their stakes on the fact that Jesus, or that following God, rather, sorry, uh, is all done in these works. That if I can keep the Sabbath and obey the law, that I will be in perfect standing. And they've missed the point of Jesus in this instance. They put all of it, they're not focused on the man standing right in front of them. They're not praising Jesus for his healing over this man. They're chastising him, saying, how dare you work on the Sabbath? How dare you work healing in this man's life? And we're going to see this time and time again in John, and specifically in all of the Gospels, that every time Jesus goes on the Sabbath, no one of the Pharisees says, praise be to the Lord. But they keep challenging him. Jesus executes his authority on earth by showing the Jews that the Sabbath is not the point. It's not the end goal. What you've essentially done, he is saying, is you're worshiping the Sabbath because that's all you can think about. And that's, again, where you put everything you have is on the Sabbath. None of it is on God the Father, and none of it is on me as his son, he is saying. You may do these religious practices, and you may follow sacred tradition, but you've entirely missed the point. You've missed Jesus. What good is it if I read my Bible just to check off a box and I'm not mesmerized by the words of Christ himself, that I'm mesmerized by the breath of God? What good is it if I go to church to check off a box to appear righteous and appear in good standing and I've missed the proclamation of the gospel? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's getting to the heart of the issue is you're putting so much weight on the Sabbath and these practices that you're not even worshiping God in the process. He's worship me. I am over the Sabbath. The Pharisees were in practice worshiping it and allowing it to dictate their lives. But Jesus here shows his authority over the religious system of that day. Going back to Matthew, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I built it. I know how it should be done, is what he is saying. So as we move uh, forward, our final point then, so especially uh, asked back those days, is, well, who are you? How dare you make these claims? How dare you say these things? Who are you? Where do you get your authority from? We see that story elsewhere. By what authority do you do these things? Final point, Jesus' authority is given by God the Father. Look with me at verses 16, 17, and 18. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, uh, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. We see in these uh, two verses Jesus explaining how he has authority to heal a man, forgive his sins, and do so on the Sabbath. 
It's because he is equal to God the Father. For the first time in John now, we see why the Jews wanted to persecute Jesus. It's because they believed him to be breaking their religious laws. But they don't want to kill him for being a rule, a rule breaker. Note that. Verse 18 shows us that beyond persecution... They wanted to kill him for his remarks made in verse 17. Jesus begins to show that his authority comes directly from God. And next week, we will see Jesus dive way deeper into the width and depth again of his authority. Just how much authority does he have? A spoiler, all authority. And we're going to see that in next week's passage. He's telling people here that he is not executing this authority on behalf of another rabbi or a king or the emperor of Rome, but he is executing his authority given by God the Father, God Almighty. And so on this passage today, we see it in display. We see his authority in action. We see that he proves he has authority from God over the physical world by healing a man. And then we see by healing this man on the Sabbath, he's establishing himself as the Messiah, higher than the prophets of old. He is the fulfillment of the law because he possesses more authority than that. Hear Jesus' closing words in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I do not desire to insult anyone's intelligence when I ask this question, but what does all mean? Everything. There is nothing that he doesn't possess. He has every inch of authority. Jesus tells the people, and is telling us today even, that God is working even until now. Friends, there is never a moment in your life where God is not working. Jesus, co-equal, co-eternal, with God the Father, is working in this day and age. His plan for you, and he will bring it to completion. What a comforting fact to know that God is working even until now. That as times get bleak or as sufferings and persecutions arise in our lives, that I know God is working in my life, and I can take comfort in that. I can rest my head every night on my pillow before I go to bed knowing God is working and will bring his plans to completion. And so as we close this morning, how are we to respond to witnessing this great power and this authority of Jesus over the highest form of devotion to God in the Sabbath And how are we to respond to his authority over us, over mankind, as he heals a man and forgives his sins? How do we respond? First, we fall to our knees and praise and worship him. We praise him for his authority over everything, that there is not a single inch in this universe that does not fall under the powerful hand of Jesus Christ. That it's, well, if I'm here, I know I'm in his authority, but if I go beyond, if I go out here, well, he's got no control. Well, no. We praise God for having all authority. He is executing his authority over our lives, in our church, and in this world. We praise God for this. We fall to our knees and worship that authority.
We don't worship the means to get to God like the Jews did with the Sabbath, the Pharisees did with the Sabbath, but we worship the end of it, which is Jesus. We don't worship anything else but Christ, and we praise him for that authority. And second, uh, we tell others about this authority. We tell people, we meet them, we call them to quote, as Jesus said, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We tell the world about the beautiful and the perfect authority from above, from Jesus Christ, from the Son of God, and say, friends, do not sin any longer. Something worse is coming. We share the gospel. We respond to this beautiful, absolute, final authority by telling the world about it. 